Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for April 8th, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Joining us once again is retired CIA analyst Ray McGovern. He earned a master's degree with honors in Russian language, literature, and history from Fordham University. And in the early 1960s, he served as a U.S. Army Infantry Intelligence Officer in the Analysis Division on Soviet foreign policy, especially with respect to China and Indochina, which includes Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Burma, and Thailand. In the CIA, from 1963 to 1990, he served under seven presidents. He chaired the National Intelligence Estimates and prepared the President's Daily Brief in the 1980s. In 2003, he co-founded Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, VIPs, dedicated to analyzing and criticizing the misuse of intelligence, specifically the false claims leading to the Iraq War. In 2006, he returned to CIA headquarters to protest the CIA's involvement in torture when he returned his Intelligence Commendation Medal. We spoke with Ray McGovern on April 6, 2022. Welcome back to Forthright Radio, Ray McGovern. Ray, your years as a CIA analyst is really welcome to helping us understand how we and by we, I mean the world, have come to the current crisis in the Ukraine. If for no other reasons, it's a world crisis because it's affecting the global economy, plus the further distraction from the greatest global crisis, which is climate catastrophe, not to mention the looming specter of the threat of nuclear weapons. So let's begin to get some context with a brief history of the Ukraine and its relationship to and with Russia going all the way back to the 10th century. Well, you picked the right century to go back to. The Slavic peoples lived in the area near Kiev and the Pripyat marshes uh, and, and around uh, what is now Belarus. And if you want to know the real story, these people were incredibly talented and had a very rich oral tradition, like Homer. <laughs> but they had no written language. Think about that. This is the ninth century, okay? Think about the Chinese civilization or the Persians or the Egyptians. The Slavic peoples had no written language. And so their imagination and their talent was limited to ballads and things like the Iliad and the Odyssey. One that comes to mind is Slova Apolku Igorevi, which was an epic. Uh, they all had it sort of memorized. Well, what happened? Two priests from Macedonia, Greek priests, went up there and lived with these people and was, wow, what a wonderful people. Too bad they don't have a language. Let's make one for them. <laughs> and so these priests, their names were Cyril and Methodius, they constructed a language. They used Greek letters where they could. They used Latin letters where they could. They picked some Hebrew letters, which resemble some of the sounds in, in Slavic. And then they had to <laughs> manufacture some some letters for sh and, and other sounds that didn't exist in the languages that they knew. Long story short, they put this alphabet together 
the Slavic peoples finally had a way of communicating, had a way of of writing down the liturgy of which they were so fond. Then finally, Prince Vladimir of Kiev decided, well, you know, now that we have this liturgy and now that we have this language, let's let's become Christians. That would be a good idea. (laughs) So he marched the people in Kiev down to the Dnieper River and said, okay, dunk yourselves in there. We're all Christians. That's pretty much how it came about. Okay. So then, of course, with the split in Christianity, the Slavs ended up with the Orthodox version of Christianity. That's the 9th, 10th century. Almost immediately, these people were just kind of finding their rich traditions and getting together. They were invaded by what we call the, the hordes from, well, the Mongolian hordes. The Russians call them the Zalataya Iga, the golden yoke, which ruled that whole area for two centuries and 40 years. So that takes us to the period where Europe is coming out of the Dark Ages, right? And the Renaissance is starting to break through. And these Slavs are just recovering from the enslavement of the Tatarsky Iga, the uh, Golden Hordes. And so they're already at a two-century at least disadvantage. And what happens? Well, then the Swedes, the Hanseatic League, the Germans... Then the Lithuanians all pounce on what was trying to be Moscow and tried to take over Russia. They were finally repelled, but only after a century. And Ivan the Terrible, Ivan Grozny, was the guy who reunited, got the nobles around and said, OK, we're going to have a strong central government. That was, what, 16th century. Then you have Peter the Great at the end of the 17th century. And you had strong leadership ending up with Catherine the Great at the time of our revolution. She reunited Russian lands down to the Black Sea to include Sevastopol, which was even then the major and only ice-free port that the Russian Navy could use. So we're talking Crimea, we're talking Sevastopol, we're talking Catherine the Great back around the time of our revolution. After that, of course, we had a couple of wars where still more people invaded Russia. We had Napoleon in the early 1800s. <laughs> we had Hitler. We know when that was. That was uh, when I was born, 1939 to 1945. Those were people that came through where? Well, they came through Ukraine, among other places. And worst of all things was that many Ukrainians cooperated with the Germans. A lot of them hated the Poles and hated the Hungarians and hated the Gypsies and hated the Jews and hated the Russians almost as much. And so there were pogroms, there were things just like Auschwitz and other things that went on in Ukraine, led by a fellow named Stepan Bandera, who is now glorified by many Ukrainians as a national hero. A Nazi, pure and simple, actually was part of the SS. It means that when the Soviet Union fell apart, I was still on active duty as an analyst of Russia with the CIA in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. And whoops, wait a second, looked like we have a, could have a whole new world in Europe, right? Russia had fallen apart. And to his great credit, uh, my friend George H.W. Bush 
And I say my friend because I worked very closely with him in 1975-76 when he was head of the CIA. And then I briefed him every other morning when he was vice president, stayed in touch with him after he left Washington. So what did he do? He immediately called up the head of Russia. His name was Mikhail Gorbachev, okay? And he said, Mikhail, really sorry about your troubles. Your world is falling apart. Your East European satellites are rebelling. The Berlin Wall has fallen. We got to get together, you and I, and figure out how to regulate, how to put some sense and limits to this. How soon could you meet me? His call was in mid-November 1989. Gorbachev said, well, I don't know, three weeks? First week of December, they meet at the island of Malta in the Mediterranean Sea, and Bush reiterates his promise, look, Mikhail, we're not going to dance on the Berlin Wall. That's the way Bush put it. We're not going to take advantage of your troubles in Eastern Europe. How soon could you see my Secretary of State? Because we've got to become very particular about the arrangements we agreed to to rescue Europe from this chaos. Gorbachev says, well, four or five weeks. First week of February, James Baker arrives in Moscow, and he's there to figure out what to do, how the, the Russians and the U.S. could cooperate to prevent chaos, to prevent yet more war in Central Europe. And so here's Baker. He's a slick lawyer from Texas, right? And he says, now, Mikhail, we'd very much like to have Germany reunited now, Joe, I don't know <laughs> whether you're old enough to have the reaction I had, but I had almost a conniption when <laughs> I heard that. My God, I didn't want Germany reunited. And I was just a little baby pretty much during World War II. But it didn't make any sense. NATO, bear this in mind, NATO was created for three purposes. One, to keep Russia out. Two, to keep the U.S. in Europe and three, to keep Germany divided. <laughs> now, that's how I felt about that. I can say something glib like I worked in Germany for five years, which I did, and some of my best friends are Germans. <laughs> that doesn't matter. I didn't want reunited Germany. Now, picture how Gorbachev and Shevardnadze, his foreign minister, felt about this. They were around during World War II. Uh, they know that 26 million, count them, 26 million Soviet citizens perished during World War II. What did we suffer in the United States? Uh, we suffered over 400,000 military casualties, soldiers. The Russians, 26 million, not just soldiers, of course, citizens. You have that kind of experience and you know that Hitler went right through this part of Eastern Europe. And, you know, when somebody says, oh, hey, let's have a reunited Germany. <laughs> well, maybe I've said enough about that. I'm pretty sure that Gorbachev and Shivered Nazi reacted the same way I did with much better reason to react that way, since I was not part of a country that lost 26 million in World War II. So what am I saying here? They said, look, this is a big quid. You're doing a quid pro quo. Where's the quo here? What's the quo? And Baker said, well, how would it be if we promised, cross our heart, hope to die, that we would never move NATO one inch east of what is now East Germany? How would that be? 
Well, Garbashov and Shevardnadze thought about that, came back the next day and said, well, okay, you promise? Cross our hearts and hopes to die, says James Baker. And they said, okay, well, if you really promise. Now, the big problem was the proper adjective is especially since James Baker was a smart Texas lawyer, he never suggested that they write this agreement down. And so it was not written down as a formal agreement, although it appears all over the notes of Baker himself, of the head of Germany. Long story short, H.W. Bush kept that promise. When Bill Clinton came in in 1997, 1998, 1999, he said, hey, let's let the Czechs in. Let's let's let the Hungarians and and the Slovaks in. And, you know, let's let these folks into NATO. They want to be in NATO, and that would be great. Somebody said, well, we promise not to do that. And Clinton, being a lawyer, would say, well, where is it written down? I mean, this happens to be important. I remember my father was a lawyer, right? He always said, Ray, for God's sake, get it in writing. (laughs) Well, Gorbachev didn't. That's why he is vilified in the Russia that he brought out of the, the dark ages with free expression and everything else. So that's what happened in 1990. February 9th was when the promise was made. Fast forward to 96, 97, 98. There are three initially East European nations drawn into NATO. There were 14 more nations brought into NATO as of this date, all of them far greater than one inch east of East Germany. There are just two things I would like to add, and you tell me if they're correct or not. My understanding is that during the reign of Catherine the Great, she realized how fertile the land in Ukraine was, but that the productivity wasn't very good. So she invited farmers in Germany to come to the Ukraine and she would give them land. They would be tax free for, I don't know, a hundred years or something like that. And so like a hundred thousand of these farmers came in and they settled there and they remained there. So they were German speakers when the Nazis came through. And there are people in Ukraine today who remember the, how do you say it, the Holodomor, Holodomor, the great famine that was perpetrated by Stalin from Moscow. So we won't spend time going into that, but the agriculture was removed from Ukraine by Stalin and his armies. Estimates are two to four million people died of hunger. In addition, a lot of Ukrainians were taken out of Ukraine, never to be seen again, some of them, some returned from gulags. But anyway, the point is, there's some bad blood between Moscow and people in Ukraine. And I think that that must have some effect on trust issues, that sort of thing. Am I more or less correct about those things? Yes, I think you are. This certainly happened under Stalin. That was almost genocide, sending those people out. They couldn't remove the soil, of course. So Ukraine became and remained pretty much the breadbasket of Europe for many, many decades. In other words, they have this huge natural resource, the black earth and the soil of Ukraine. What do Ukrainians remember most? Do they remember the Nazis coming through? Do they remember how some of their major leaders now being honored, not only cooperated 
but did better than the Nazis in slaying all manner of people that were not what the Nazis wanted. Whether they hate Stalin or they hate Hitler more is just a matter of how old they are, I suppose. When NATO grew like Topsy, so to speak, fast forward to 2008, when Ukraine was being suggested to be part of NATO, and so was the country of Georgia. This was a bridge too far. Up until then, the Russians could hardly do much about it. They just watched these infringements continue, despite the promise of 1990. Finally, but this time Putin and his foreign minister, Lavrov, the same fellow who is foreign minister now, called our ambassador in to the foreign ministry. His name was is Bill Burns. He's now head of the CIA. Then he was ambassador to Moscow. Now, what Sergei Lavrov said to Bill Burns is written down in a cable from Moscow, authentic as can be, uh, if I've seen one cable from Moscow, I've seen about 3,000 of them, okay? How do we have it? We have it thanks to WikiLeaks that published the text of this cable. Lavrov says, Mr. Burns, do you know what NET means? <laughs> Burns says, well, yeah, I think so. Well, NET means NET. You let Ukraine into NATO and we will have all kinds of problems because this is a red line for us and we will not allow it. There will be the question as to whether we should invade Ukraine. Lavrov's words, 2008. And surely there will be some kind of civil war in Ukraine. So forget about it. Nyet means nyet. Did Burns give an accurate account of that conversation to Condoleezza Rice, his Secretary of State at the time? Yes, he did. And he went a little bolder than most ambassadors. Did he said, you know, the Russians do have their strategic concerns as well. You know, they're entitled to have their strategic concerns. This is a bridge too far. This is a, quote, red line for Russia. That's 2008. That was February 1st that conversation between Lavrov and Burns, two months later, on April 3rd, 2008, a NATO summit in Bucharest, in its wisdom, declared Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. Now, there were smart European countries at that time, like France and Germany, who said, well, this is never going to happen. We'll just give the U.S. this blessing. But that was not enough for the Russians. They got very concerned about that. It wasn't until Russia very assiduously cultivated close friendship with China, and that began as soon as Putin took the reins of the Russian government, early 2000s. It wasn't until China pretty much said, okay, we are under a similar threat in the Far East. The U.S. has made us, if not enemy number one, we're enemy number two. After they get finished with you, Vladimir Putin, they're coming after us. We have a virtual alliance now. That happened last year. And in my analysis, that emboldened Putin to say, look, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm not going to sit by idly as I watch the Ukrainian neo-Nazi troops kill 14,000 of my country people in the eastern part of Ukraine. I'm not going to stand silent as the U.S. builds 
short-range and intermediate-range nuclear missiles on our periphery, I'm going to go and clean that place out. Now, the big surprise, Joy, and this is what surprised all sophisticated analysts, including me, was that China would go that far. See, China has this principled policy of non-interference in the affairs of other people. Going back to the Treaty of Westphalia, for God's sake, that's 1648, which ended that 30 years war where people said there's probably a better way to dealing with other people than, than killing them off, okay? 1648. Well, China, up until last year, was pretty much the sole defender of the principles of Westphalia. And now they have carved out an exception for Vladimir Putin. They no longer say Treaty of Westphalia, not interference in the affairs of other countries. Now what they say is we judge each particular event and fracas on its own merits. That is a sea change. And it means that we Chinese recognize that Russia and we are in this together and that as we're in this together, we will cause a counterweight that makes all the New York Times protestations about Russia being isolated pretty laughable. We and the Russians are together. Even the Indians, who don't like the Chinese very much, have been abstaining on some of the things that the, that the U.S. wanted. And you have countries like South Africa, Saudi Arabia, for God's sake, even Brazil, not towing a line in this division. The world has become bipolar, maybe in both senses of that word. It's now the West, the enlivened West against Russia, China, probably India, and many other folks. Take a close look at NATO. What is one distinguishing characteristic of the countries in NATO? They're all white. They're all white. Maybe the Turks are a little bit people of color, but they're all white. What about these others? Well, the Chinese, of course, the Indians, they're non-white. The Russians have been so demonized that they're almost black by this time. Africa, which has not gone along with what the U.S. wants to do in this thing, half of Africa at least, Brazil, all people who are kind of non-white. That speaks to a real, real bifurcation of the world, totally unnecessary, but only because, in my view, Bill Clinton didn't live up to his promises, and it took Vladimir Putin two decades to get China on his side. Now he's emboldened, and now he's not going to put up with any more infringements by NATO, certainly not in Ukraine, in Georgia, neither. And we'll just have to see how this thing plays out. The Chinese are now enemy number one. Is McGovern imagining that? No. <laughs> the Defense Department put out their four-year paper on who's the major enemy. Who came in first? China. Where did Russia stand? Ah, they were sort of a secondary challenge. Well, today, the head of NATO, Stoltenberg, said China's the real target here. NATO has to target China. NATO plans to deepen its cooperation with its partners in Asia as a response to a rising, quote, security challenge coming from China. Bottom line, the U.S. and puppets like Stoltenberg have taken on this incredibly dangerous course of endangering a two-front war where nobody can win. And the U.S. is at the, at the complete 
two to one disadvantage, whereas five decades ago, the U.S. was able to play Russia off against China. Now they are virtual allies. And Biden's advisors still don't seem to get it. We are speaking with Ray McGovern, retired CIA analyst, one of the founding members of VIPs, that's Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray, we should address this issue of Nazification in Ukraine. The Western media scoffs at this. They say, how could that be so? After all, Zelensky is Jewish, and so that's crazy. But to me, it's kind of analogous to saying that because we had a president of African descent, we couldn't have neo-Nazis or white supremacists in this country as any kind of threat to democracy, for example. So would you please inform us about this Azov battalion? Zelensky being Jewish, of course, is a very handy talking point. But your analogy is good. Just because we had a black president doesn't mean, unfortunately, that his administration was good to black people. It wasn't. What happened after the war, and I'm drawing on documents now, is that the the intelligence services, uh, CIA had not been created yet, they recruited Nazis. Why? Because Nazis were against Russians. Anybody against Russians was on our side, ipso facto. All manner of Nazis were allowed into this country, and many were cultivated in Europe, including people like Bandera, who I mentioned before, who was helped by the Allies to escape what was due him for collaborating with the Nazis. So there's a long history of this, going back to exactly 1946, and it all came to a head for present purposes in 2014. Now, what happened in 2014? There was a coup in Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, which has been appropriately described as the most blatant coup in history. On the 4th of February 2014, there was a intercepted conversation played on YouTube of all places. It was a conversation en clas, that is, you know, not encrypted, between the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Victoria Newland, and the U.S. Ambassador in Kiev, Jeffrey Pyatt. It revealed that they were plotting this coup. They were picking the new prime minister, who they called Yats. They were saying that this is going to be all okay, and if the EU has misgivings about this, well... Victoria Nuland used the F word, well, she said F the EU, and then at the end of this, to make it all sort of official and have an internationally known statesman tie it all up, Jake Sullivan, who is working for Joe Biden, the vice president, said, yep, we're all set, the vice president is all set to come in here and uh, tie this thing together. That was all in this intercepted conversation, the name of the new prime minister, everything. Now, when I heard that, I know a little bit about coups, having watched many of them. I said to myself, oh, you know, <laughs> I almost feel sorry for yachts. 
Yatsenyuk, because there's no way he's going to be prime minister anymore. The, the coup is blown. When you, when you have a coup plan that's blown, it doesn't happen. Well, apparently, Joy, Vladimir Putin, who was at the Sochi Winter Olympics, uh, drew the same conclusion. He must have been sort of intrigued. Wow, hey, these guys I didn't know they got that, that far along planning the coup, but certainly it's blown now. And so he stayed there. The coup happened on the 22nd of February. What was that? That was 18 days after it had been blown on YouTube. So the most blatant coup in history, obviously, that's a good characterization. What happened? Well, the Nazis were brought in. They had been trained in Poland and other countries, and they spearheaded these uh, riots on the Maidan, the big main square in Kiev. And before you knew it, they had overthrown the government. And who was the new prime minister? Yats. <laughs> Yatsenyuk, okay? And what did he say? He said, well, let's join NATO. And then he said, let's ban Russian as an official language. Those were his first two steps. Now, let's join NATO. There was no way that Mr. Putin, when he got back to Moscow on the 23rd of February 2014, that he was going to let NATO take over Russia's only warm water all year round port naval base in Sevastopol in Crimea. We know how that came out. Now, how about those people in the eastern part of Ukraine who are Russian speakers, many of them already Russian citizens, how they feel about Russia being banned as an official language? Well, they could see the handwriting on the wall. They could see that this was a, a rather fascist regime coming in, headed by people who actually took places in the government, like the Minister of Interior and so forth, known right sector known Azov Battalion Nazi folks. So they declared independence. As a matter of fact, they wanted to rejoin Russia, rejoin Russia just like Crimea. Putin at that point said, no way, you guys fight it out and we'll give you some unofficial support. So that's the background of all this, okay? It was a coup eight years ago on the streets of Kiev, orchestrated by friendly intelligence services of the West with leading personages like the Assistant Secretary of State, Victoria Nuland, saying, F the EU, we're going to just do this and the Russians will have to live with it. Well, we know what happened. The Crimea voted for annexation to Russia, and that happened. And those two republics now have been declared independent. And what will come out of this war, this god-awful war, at least will be some measure of self-rule for the Russian speakers and the Russian citizens in the eastern part of Ukraine. I would point out one other thing, and that is that in the intelligence business, a lot of this operations activity is smoke and mirrors, okay? Now, after the coup in Ukraine, and after the Russians reacted by taking Crimea and by supporting, to the degree they did, the people in Lugansk and Donetsk, the U.S. mounted a campaign to have the Europeans enforce sanctions, economic sanctions against Russia, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't persuade the European leaders to cut off their noses to spite their face the sanctions that were envisaged at that time would have hurt Europe as much as it would have hurt Russia. On July 17th, 2014, 
just a couple of months after the coup, there was a Malaysian airliner with 298 folks aboard that was shot down over eastern Ukraine. Whoa, that was the 17th of July. John Kerry, our Secretary of State, went on all the Sunday talk shows three days later, namely on the 20th of July, and said it was the Russians, it was the Russians, it was the Russians. I quote, we have imagery, we have trajectory information, we have information on when that plane was hit, where it was hit, exact moment that it came down, we know it was the Russians or the pro-Russian separatists, okay? Now, that persuaded the Europeans, after they dilly-dallied for another 10 days, to impose really, really stringent sanctions on Russia. Where was the proof? I spoke to a fraction, a faction, they call it, a, a part of the German parliament about six years ago. And I said, did the United States ever show you the imagery, the trajectory information, the information that they have on when and where it was shot down and so forth? No, they hadn't. The U.S. has kept that claimed information by Kerry under wraps to the point where there's a trial going on in The Hague right now. Two people are being prosecuted for downing that plane, and the U.S. has not been willing to share what Kerry claimed to be the information indicting the Russians. U.S. has not given that to the court. My conclusion is twofold. Does the U.S. have precise information with respect to who shot down MH17, killing 298 people? The answer is yes. I know enough about the U.S. intelligence capabilities in that area to know that they were homed in laser-like on that particular area of the Ukraine. It had to be. Now, number two, was that information collected by U.S. satellites and other means? Was that the same as what Kerry claimed? The answer to that is no. And the answer is very, very clear, because it had it been the real deal, had it been the same information, the U.S. would have long since made that available at the U.N., at The Hague, to anyone who wanted to see it. It doesn't exist, which prompts me to say that John Kerry, whatever his merits when he was protesting Vietnam, did not distinguish well between truth and falsity. He accused the Syrians of mounting chemical attacks when he knew they didn't. And it became so bad that Vladimir Putin told President Obama alone in St. Petersburg, uh, he said, on vriot, on znaechto vriot which means Kerry lies. He knows he's lying. This is very sad. On the subject of lies, I acknowledge that CIA State Department involvement in the affairs of other countries has a really long and really sordid history. On the other hand, there is the question of proportionality. The massing and then the invasion into Ukraine, to me anyway, and to many others, seems out of all proportion to the things you have been talking about. And although it's very difficult to get information that one can really trust, it does seem that there are war crimes involved. Now, I say this 
holding back a sense of irony because of our own history in the United States and even recent interrogation of Ketanji Brown Jackson by Senators Cornyn and Lindsey Graham, uh, shocked that when she was a federal public defender, she wrote a brief in which she mentioned U.S. war crimes in regard to torture and that sort of thing. Could you address the issue of proportionality and what we have been seeing in terms of destruction in Ukraine? The caveat is what we have seen has come through Ukrainian sources and CNN, BSNBC, ABC, people who have exposed the American people to an exclusively one-side portrayal of what's gone on. There have been many false flags. That maternity hospital, for example, is a great example. That had been a maternity hospital. Those people were, were cast out. One pregnant woman was left, and she herself has recanted, has, has said this was, a, this was a false flag. So what we're getting in terms of the media is exactly what we got before the war in Iraq, total dishonesty, total feeding from people like the CIA and the State Department. The other side of it is we also don't know how many Ukrainian troops were poised to enter Donetsk and Lugansk and finish those people off in late February. Was most of the Ukrainian armed forces, were they arrayed against those two republics? Yes, they were. That's Everyone acknowledges that. Did they have orders to invade in March, as some people have claimed? I don't know. Putin says that, but they were there and they had already taken, as I said before, thousands of lives across the border in these folks, uh, in these uh, Lugansk and Donetsk, where people just want to live in peace and have a degree of regional autonomy. So that's one thing. The other thing is when you watch your countrymen being done in for eight years and you stand helpless to help them. When you see Nazis, the same ones that took 27 million Russian people back in World War II, in the lead, persecuting these folks, that hurts really, too. And actually, it sort of adds an emotional dimension to this thing. But when you also see that you have maybe a one-time chance to make sure this doesn't happen anymore, again, This is what I'm putting into Putin's calculations. When he goes to China on the 4th of February, as he did, and he says to President Xi Jinping, wow, this is a really strong statement we have that our alliance is so firm that it has no upper end. I may have to invade Ukraine. What was Xi's reaction? Many of my Chinese expert friends say, oh, no, the Chinese would never agree to that. The Chinese have a principal stand on non-interference in the affairs of other countries. So they would never say, never say okay to that. Okay. well, I don't know. I think the proof is in the pudding. I think Putin almost certainly told Z that this was going to happen. My guess is that Z said, well, now, Vladimir, would would you say that again? Uh, We may have to invade Ukraine to get rid of those Nazis and to make sure that their forces are destroyed. 
My notion of how Z reacted was, you mean after the Olympics are over, right? Because one day after the Olympics were over, the Russians declared Donetsk and Lugansk independent countries. They, in turn, asked the Russians to come in. Well, they came in really strong. I say that because in retrospect, look how the Chinese have reacted. They have supported Putin. They have actually criticized NATO for not taking Putin's concerns into account. They have really come out strongly against the sanctions and against U.S. attempts to prevent them from helping the Russians against the sanctions, which they're surely going to do. And so this is the big deal. In other words, why did Putin do it? I, I condemn invading other countries. But what I also condemn is a one-sided story that doesn't look at all the aspects. And one aspect which is continually bruited about in the, in the media is this was unprovoked. Sorry to tell you, it was not unprovoked. It was illegal. That's pretty much for sure, unless you play games with Article 51 of the U.N. Charter. But it was not unprovoked. Putin warned that this thing might come. We didn't take him seriously because we never thought he'd do what he did. Why did he do it? I think the primary reason was the backing of China, and that creates a whole different tectonic shift in the correlation of forces in the world, and that's what we're not prepared for because our military, at least they say, they're out for both. China's number one, Russia's number two, they're going to do both, and we have pundits and academics writing books about, we may well have to fight two front wars against China and Russia. People have gone mad, Joy. That's the only expression applicable here. They've gone mad. I'd like your evaluation of Vladimir Zelensky. A listener has inquired, is he really the courageous hero and protector of his people that the Western mainstream media portray him? Is he a puppet of the U.S.? Does the CIA control him? How do you evaluate this? It's complicated. I would say first and foremost that when he became president, and this is well known, he ran on a platform of having more cordial relations with Russia. So he went out to the eastern provinces, the Donetsk and Lugansk, and he went to the Azov Battalion, the openly, avowedly Nazi Azov Battalion. Now, they fly SWAT stickers, for God's sake. They have tattoos all over their Nazis. So he went to them. And he said, look, uh, I'd like to tamp down things on the front here. Could you just not shell uh, so many uh, Russian-speaking settlements? And they looked at him. I said, who the hell are you? you? You know, I've just been elected president. I said, get out of here. That's the correlation of forces between Zelensky and the Azov Battalion, the right sector, and other Nazi and proto-Nazi groups in Ukraine. He's not his own man. He risks his very life by countermanding or going against the Azov Battalion. Whether you look on this as fortunately or not, they are all encircled now in Mariupol. That's the cauldron is what the Russians call it. That's what they're trying to close in on and decimate the Azov Battalion. So that's one thing. The other thing is Zelensky. Is he doing what Biden wants him to do? Well, that's really complicated, isn't it? Biden says, I don't want a no-fly zone. I don't want to send MiGs to the Ukrainians. I don't want to even risk getting involved in a war with Russia. 
That's sensible. What does Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer do? They invite Zelensky to address a joint session of Congress to say the opposite, to pull for more open support, explicitly including open a no-fly zone and more MiGs and so forth. So who's who's running U.S. policy here? Who's at work having Zelensky undermine the very delicate stand that Biden has taken. Who wants Biden to change his mind? You've heard me talk about the Mickey Mat. It's what Eisenhower called the MIC, the MIC, the Military Industrial Complex. Here it is, the Mickey Mat. So Military Industrial Congressional Intelligence Media Academia Think Tank Complex Mickey Mat. Why do I say media? Because media is the cornerstone. Without control of the media, you can't make this thing work. And you've seen the media over the last several weeks performing true to form. They are a creature of the rest of the Mickey Mat, which controls and owns the media. This is the sad part. Americans are getting just one steady dose of propaganda, whether it's in this place called Gucha, whatever it is, or whether it's chemical weapons that might be used as a false flag to blame on the Russians. Americans have nothing to turn to for real news, but it's really, really frustrating. What we need to do is just keep plugging away. And as Julian Assange, my good friend, says, the truth will always win in the end. You could add another letter to Mickey Mack, and that is money. And money makes the whole thing go around. Community radio is perennially starved of money. We hold it all together with bailing wire and chewing gum and duct tape. Do you have any words of encouragement to listeners around the world, not just in the county where community radio resides, because it is a global thing now. Do you have any words of encouragement to support community radio? Joy, I can tell you that I have been encouraged by hearing from people in the the nether parts of this globe who hear community radio and get in touch with me, find my website, email me. And my website, by the way, is raymcgovern.com. If that happens to me, multiply that by a thousand and you're getting a lot of exposure that only the Internet can account for or enable You're not going to get it on BSNBC or CNN or or Fox News. You're not going to get it there. And so people who are really interested in in the real deal will look for uh, community radio and other places. It's a good thing we still have the internet. I would tell you this, that my good friend Scott Ritter has just been banned on Twitter. Use it or lose it. Use community radio. Use Twitter, Facebook, whatever, before... They clamp down completely. If Scott Ritter can't do Twitter anymore, no pun intended, no Ritter on Twitter, that's pretty serious because Scott was the guy that tried to warn, ironically, tried to warn Biden before the war in Iraq in 2003. Biden wouldn't let him through the door. Neither would his senator, who happened to be Hillary Clinton of New York State. Scott knew chapter and verse that there was no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and they wouldn't let him say it. So now they've banned him from Twitter. Community radio is one of our last resources here. I hope that people who have enough money for other things would to be able to chip in and help you guys out. I know what bailing wire and chewing gum look like. 
<laughs> Are you as confused as I am? Maybe your years of experience is serving you to be able to wade through this. For me, false flags bring up the whole conspiracy people that deny Parkland shooting or little children in Connecticut being shot by RF-15s. And so I just, false flags mean something different to me than it used to. Let me put it that way. I share. I mean, I've had some experience with false flag attacks. I mean, some recent experience, as well as when I was professionally back in that in that group, the false flag attacks with sarin gas in Syria, three of them, count them, they're all false flags, all arranged by Western intelligence services. The principles of physics have been applied to those events, those incidents, and have proven that the claims uh, that the Syrian government used sarin or chlorine or whatever cannot be verified. Worse still, the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Warfare, part of the UN, has been totally corrupted and has put out reports 180 degrees at variance with what their experts have reported from the field investigating these incidents. So that's how bad it is. In other words, I asked some of these experts, okay, how about these biological research facilities in Ukraine? Can't we have the UN come in there and take a look? What what unit of the UN would, would look at those biological things? And the answer I get is the same corrupted unit that looks at the chemical things. There's no way around it. There's no outside force. People think the UN might be apolitical, as they used to be. No more. If you're looking at chemical or biological, you've got a totally corrupted case. And this is very, very easily proven by documents that have come out over the past two years, specifically related to those chemical attacks in Syria. So that's a sad thing. And that's why we need to not get banned. That's why we need to talk about these things. The most recent thing is today, a um, chemical facility in Lugansk uh, was shelled. And uh, there's a great big mushroom-type cloud, believe it or not, of yellow hue that we have photos of now. The Russians, of course, are being blamed for that, but it looks very much like it was a false flag shell deliberately fired by a Ukrainian unit. NATO, they're meeting today and tomorrow in Brussels. NATO foreign ministers, they already have this big to-do about those bodies that were placed in that little suburb of Kiev. Now will they say, whoops, now we warned about this chemical attack. Look, the Russians are using chemical warfare things or releasing them, killing people. Will they use that as well? I don't know if there are enough level-headed people in Biden's entourage to persuade him that he's doing the right thing that it doesn't make any sense to risk a war with Russia. And I just hope that he can hang in there and not be diverted. He's got his own Hunter Biden scandals to deal with. Uh, some of those documents, some of those things in that computer show that he was going to get a cut of that stuff from the Chinese. 
So there's always the possibility of what we used to call a wag the dog kind of situation where you start hostilities in one area abroad to divert attention from your troubles at home, as Bill Clinton did in attacking so-called chemical facilities in Sudan to detract attention from his dalliance with uh, Monica Lewinsky. So, yeah, so your point is really well taken. False flag, in a, a general term, when you use weapons of mass destruction, and what that means to most people is nuclear weapons, when you use chemical and biological, and you, you kind of fold them in, then you kind of obfuscate the real threat. And you can use that any number of ways if we didn't have examples like the incubator, do you remember the incubator? Oh, yes, uh, I certainly do. Yeah. So if we didn't have examples like that, uh, masterfully planned and executed by Hill and Olson, the PR firm, the uh, Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter crying about babies being thrown out of incubators by Iraqi soldiers. Oh, it was just awful. It was completely, completely untrue. It was used at the U.N. They got a vote to invade Iraq, and they did. Now, who remembers that? Well, I do. You do. But people, a whole generation is growing up now with no knowledge of how insidious this was before and how duplicative it is of what went before. So it's a sad state of affairs. The media is at the bottom of it, and you, you rightly point out money. I mean, there are good ratings, and there's a lot of money to be made by sponsors, whether they're General Electric or Lockheed or Raytheon or Procter & Gamble. Uh, you can make a lot of money by putting out this propaganda, and that's what it is, pure and simple, propaganda. At moments like this, I, I like to think of two people. One is Ferenc, one of the Nuremberg prosecutors for the U.S. His life is amazing and how he hung in there and became what he was, one of the main prosecutors at Nuremberg. He said in a very pithy way, he said, never give up. And besides, never give up. And also, never give up. <laughs> The other person I like to think of is I.F. Stone. In a peculiar way, recalling his words always gives me some encouragement. He says, you know, you got to go in this truth business, in this search for justice with open eyes. I mean, you got to realize you're going to lose. And then you're going to lose. And, and then you're going to lose. But then you're going to lose again. But then some fine day. People who are as equally devoted to justice and truth as you are, they're going to win. And so what you need to do is not take yourself so seriously that you need to uh, go into this with not only a, an open mind, but a sense of humor to the degree you can, you can uh, summon it up and realize that you're part of a historical thing that's worth doing just because it's worth doing. It's always worth doing the truth and justice, and uh, you take you could take a lot of solace in that. And I do, Joy, and I hope you do too. It keeps me going, <laughs> fractured shoulder and all. 
Gosh, you're pretty good at it. Yeah. Well, Ray McGovern, thank you again for your many years of trying to bring the truth to the greatest number of people and for joining us again on Forthright Radio. We very much appreciate it. You're most welcome, Joy. You have just heard a conversation with retired CIA analyst Ray McGovern, recorded on April 6, 2022. The day after we recorded this interview, the General Assembly of the United Nations voted to expel Russia from the UN Human Rights Council, 93 to 24, with 58 abstentions, well over the 78 constituting the two-thirds required to expel Russia. The repression of media in Russia is deplorable and has been well publicized in the U.S. media. Less well reported is the recent removal of people of conscience, such as Scott Ritter, the UN weapons inspector, who tried unsuccessfully to report that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq before the 2003 invasion, or Chris Hedges, author and Pulitzer Prize-winning war correspondent, whose entire archive of interviews was removed by YouTube without warning or explanation, much less ability to appeal. Whether one agrees with what they or Ray McGovern has to say, it is crucial that dissenting voices be able to be heard. How else to discern truth from falsehoods? We have such a precious instrument in our community radio station, KZYX, and it just becomes more precious with every passing year. Please, let us join together to sustain, maintain, and expand this vehicle for voices that the military-industrial-congressional-media-academic-think-tank-moneyed complex do all in their power to suppress. Give what you can so that this magnificent expression of people power can keep giving too. And although it's local in origin, it truly is global in impact. The kind of force multiplier that we can all feel good about amplifying. We thank you for your support and we ask you to continue supporting it. And we pledge to continue to do our best to merit your support. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs, where you'll also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews, by going to our website, forthright.media. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.